0: Hi, this is Mike McGinn, and this is the podcast You, Me, Us Now, and it's a podcast I've started to try to bring out the voices of people in the community that are trying to create change. My story, I was mayor of Seattle um, after I'd been working for years and years in the neighborhood and environmental arena, and in the course of that work, I met absolutely amazing people. Um, And there's a reason I picked out this song to start, uh, besides being a reggae fan. But check out the words here for just a second. Everyone is crying out for peace, yes. None is crying out for justice. I don't... Got Leno dancing now. Leno's loving this one, and here's why. I just always loved that song because when I was mayor, every once in a while I was, and Leno will know this because he worked with me in the. Uh, he was the director of my office of uh, immigrant, immigrants and refugees. Uh, immigrants and refugees. My guest today, Mag- Magdaleno Rose Avila, who better known as Leno these days better known as Leno and Leno's great but Leno will know this I was I was elected mayor I wanted to change things and every once in a while people were going mayor you're too divisive why can't we have a little more peace around here and this song would run through my head and then of course it was against me there were times when I'm in the mayor's office and I'm like why can't I get some peace everybody's (laughs) clamoring for justice
1: so you got it both ways there so Leno welcome to the show thank you very much it's great to be here um I just got to put in, you know, start out with my first complaint. Okay, go. I, I, I had chosen a different reggae song. I like this one. I never heard it. But I was after Bob Marley's get up, stand up, for, stand up for your rights. But I think, you know, what's amazing is reggae music has so many international messages that we can all take from it. So this is a great song, you know.
0: Well, it became it became international pop music, in a, it, which was really fascinating. But this wasn't your first choice, actually, for reggae
1: music. No, what it was, was your first choice. Bob Marley's "Get Up, Stand Up" for your rights. No, but in the pre-show, you were telling
0: me there's another one you liked. I shot oh, the sheriff. Oh, there's another
1: one. I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the deputy. Okay,
0: and why did you pick that one, Leno?
1: <laughs> this goes back to when I did shoot um, an officer. Uh, it doesn't sound as bad as it it sounds. <laughs> But it isn't as bad. Uh, I had been uh, imbibing in something called Cerveza or beer and uh, was in a state park with along with some other Vista volunteers who were my staff. And they came to arrest us to take us out of there. And we told them, only Native Americans can arrest us on Indian land. And the state highway patrolman said, no, no, we're going to arrest you. And you're the ringleader. And I was standing about two feet from him. And I, was, I had a water pistol on me. It's summer, Fourth of July weekend. I shot him three times in the chest, from about two feet away, and I said, "You're not taking me alive, you know, James Cagney. You dirty cop, you, you, you're not taking me alive." And, and he was not very happy. I, I, we all went to jail. I was convicted for a federal charge on federal land shooting an officer with a water pistol, and I appealed at the federal district court, and I got it overturned. Okay. So, Leno, uh, so let me try to
0: introduce Leno, which it's hard. He's now just introduced himself after my garbled reggae start to this show, trying to pull from the wisdom of Peter Tosh and why it meant something to me. And, and you topped me, Leno. That's a problem with talking to Leno. He has better <laughs> stories than you. Let's just start with that premise as well. So let me, let me just tell you a little bit about Magdaleno. Grew up in Colorado. Right. We're going to talk a little bit about that. A farm worker family. He found his way to college, graduated from college, started working with Cesar Chavez right. uh, amongst other people. He has been in, he was in the Peace Corps in Nicaragua during the time of the Sandinistas. He worked with Sister Helen Prejean, who you may know as the famous author of Dead Man Walking. That was while he was at Amnesty International working on the eliminating, eliminating the death penalty. And as I mentioned, he also worked with me. In the mayor's office, uh, where I learned
1: that he has more stories than than you do. Well, I think we I think we all have stories. It's just that uh, some of us don't think our stories are as important as they are. And the difference is that you know all all the great religious books are done on parables or stories, so that people can remember what happens. And so I started writing my stories down in my poems because I think that's one way you show um, where you are, what you believe, and what you're going to change. And so I think. I started practicing because I was never a public speaker. I took about 30 classes in college to learn how to public speak. I took another 10 to learn how to say jokes in public. And so I found out in the course of things that if I told people a story or a parable about some part of my life or Cesar Chavez or Martin Luther King's or Eleanor Roosevelt, who's a big hero of mine, when you start studying them, then you go, man, these are great stories. You ought to share them with somebody. And so I'm always encouraging people to write your books, and I encourage you to write your book. I've got
0: 70,000 words. I've got 76,000 words so far, Leno. That's great. It's I, too many. I need to cut out the unentertaining parts of the well,
1: story. No, Have other people help you take a look at it, because what you may think is not important is important. And so um, when people help me edit my stuff, it's always interesting. But, you know, one of the groups that we really have to get to write their stories, besides us boys doing it, is women, because most of the stuff that's authored, that's taught, is done by men. And and I know from having nine sisters and a strong mother, that women, we got to get their stories out there. Because while we struggle, you know, you struggle as a white man, I struggle as a, as a Latino, is that the 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 women, and in particular women of color, have, have a whole different life that, you know. Well, I, the, this is, you
0: are at the very premise for this show, which is, um, you, me, us now, is a phrase that. I learned as an organizer, um, right. Marshall Gans, right. who's the organizing guru at Harvard, also worked with Cesar Chavez. He talks about something called self-us now. And this is how you get people engaged in, in work is that it, it comes from their own personal narrative, who they are, what they want to be. And then they have to learn somebody else's narrative. Right, And then when you can get a combined, a shared narrative of what you want the future to be, then you can move to a discussion of, well, what are we going to do now? So You, Me, Us Now is the name of the show because I want to bring stories to people.
1: Well, one of the things people ought to do is is buy uh, some of Marshall Ganz's books. Absolutely. He wrote, uh, you know, Sometimes uh, David Can Win about David and Goliath. And <laughs> so if you look at the civil rights movement, like the farm worker movement, is you find a lot of Jewish young people that went out and joined those movements and so, you know, I was a farm worker. I was an organizer from Colorado. I went out to uh, California and became part of the union. And they sent me to Salinas and they said, we want you to go see how Marshall Gans is organizing. I go, what's a, what's a, a young Jewish boy going to teach a Mexican? And I saw him out in the middle of a lettuce field with workers around him, uh, this Jewish uh, curly-headed guy with the walrus mustache. And his Spanish was better than mine. And he's out there, and he's a, if you watch Marshall Gans, the way he writes his book, the way he teaches about getting out voters, organizing people, organizing money, he was doing that with workers. And exactly what you talked about. He took their narrative, learned from it, and spoke it back to them. And that's why people would listen to Marshall Gans. You'd sit there and nod, and you'd say, man, this guy's from the east. He's all the way out here at the other extreme of the country, and he's teaching and preaching and doing the right thing. That's amazing.
0: I had no idea that you had that personal connection to
1: him. Oh, yeah. No, I, I was in awe of him, and I, I haven't been able to see him for many years. But when you see somebody who's doing amazing things, because organizing isn't easy, especially with lettuce workers and all this stuff. But for him to sit out there and just people were, were listening to him. And I said, one day I'm going to be able to do what Marshall Gans does, what Cesar Chavez does. I'm going to have people listen to my story. But he's he's a great organizer, and he learned there. We all learned there. That was our PhD, public highway demonstration. <laughs> That's where you get your PhDs. <laughs> and Marshall Gans got at least three of them working out there. So let's let's get your story. Where where were you born? Where'd you grow up? My parents came from Mexico, immigrants, undocumented, and uh, grew up in a small town, Las Animas, Colorado. Very economic, very poor. Three thousand people, and. Uh, a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination, economic and otherwise. And uh, I was born to a poorest family in town. We had 12 kids. I had nine sisters. And, uh, you know, I joked with my sisters and said, you know, I was never for feminists because I saw how strong women, when they have power in my family, how they would take it over. But, you know, I saw also, you know, that um, my sisters, who were very bright, were never— Able to get the kind of breaks that I did as often as I did, even though I had to struggle for them. Because Latino women, Black women, Asian women—they have a double whammy. First, they're women, and then second year, they're part of a minority class. So we all had to struggle with that. Our family was poor. My father was a farm worker. I went to work at age eleven alongside him so that we could have money and food for the family. By age thirteen, I'm traveling in the migrant stream, going from state to state. Uh, shearing sheep, and and you know when I look at other thirteen year old boys, I said, "What was I thinking that I could go out there without my parents, just with an all male crew?" And you grow up, and and I think you know when I saw the poverty, and I saw the racism, and I saw the frustration, I saw how people took advantage of my parents and other poor people. Not only the Mexicans, but you know if you're really a poor white person in my hometown. You got dumped on a lot. And, you know, we had some really good white friends that were very poor. The middle class whites didn't want them, so we accepted them. They became part of our grouping. And and so then, you know, what my motivation was that um, I wanted to go, um, I wanted to change things. Well, you told a story about being in the field. You told me a story one time about being in the
0: fields with your father. And your father suggested you go to college, I remember.
1: Well, he suggested I do something, so I just graduated from school. High school, the only thing I've ever known is farm work. I have my shirt off. I have muscles. I'm looking at the young ladies a few rows away, hoping that I will be a, a proper suitor for them. My father takes me to a side and he says, uh, Magdaleno, have you thought about what you're going to do with your life? And I said, well, I'm going to do the same thing you did. I'm going to work for these farmers. I'm going to marry one of these girls over there. We're going to have kids and I'm going to grow up in this town. And he said, um, well, did you ever think about going to college or trade school or something? I said, no. Do you think I could do that? He says, my son, I'm not sure about that, but I am sure about one thing. You're not a very good farm worker, so you got to get out of this line of work because you're going to starve. Your wife's going to starve. The kids are going to starve. So please. And, you know, I go, it's like a crushing moment. The only thing you've ever done is farm work and then to tell you that you're not good at it. And so I left and I went to California. I worked in the Citrus as a farm worker. Then I went to junior college and I got to college. I was reading at the sixth grade level. So they told me the only way you're going to make it is if you find somebody who um, who is a good student. So I found an older white guy on the debate team who became my debate partner, and I told him Lincoln, you've got to help me manage this college stuff. He said, "Why should I do that? I don't like Catholics or Mexicans or people on welfare or liberals." And I said, "Well, you got to do it because you're the smartest guy." And Lincoln Horton was my teacher for three years in in college in California, and a. Three years ago, I got the alumna, alumnus of the year award from the junior college. And, and in my biography that they put in there, I said, you've got to put Lincoln Horton, because I got help from my teachers, from the janitors, from the service workers. But more importantly, I got it from Lincoln Horton, a, a white guy who didn't like Mexicans. And we became brothers. And I think that, you know, when you're growing up, uh, not everybody that you think looks like you, acts like you, is going to be the person that helps you. But you know, and I talked about it at the commencement that year. I said, you know, there are people that are willing to help you. Sometimes you got to push them to help you, but they're going to help you. And it made a difference. And at that college, I learned to talk in public and to do a lot of things. But I think, you know, what you do is none of us are pulled up by our bootstraps. And when I went to college, I had a lot of white people that were heavy influences, which was a new experience for me. And then when I got out. I started working with blacks and Asians and gays and and people with different abilities you know who might be in a wheelchair and when and,
0: was when was your first activism? When did you go from when did you say I want to change something?
1: Well, uh, there's a number of different steps, but the biggest one was when Martin Luther King died and so then uh, so how old are you? I'm uh, golly fudge. I must be about uh, 21 years old. I'm a junior at the University of Colorado mm-hmm. And, uh, they, there was uh, 30 blacks on campus, 11 Latinos And the Boulder is a big campus and they had a bookstore and I was the only one Latino who read any of the black history. So SDS students for democratic society was a big organization, good radicals because of the war in Vietnam. And so, uh, when Dr. King died, uh, this guy from the SDS who I knew, and I'm sitting there crying cause you know, he's a man of nonviolence, a black man who I loved and, uh, He says, "Um, you know, we got all the black athletes, the black intellectuals (laughs) didn't want to demonstrate. He said, but we needed Latinos. Even then, the SDS was thinking about diversity. And he said, and we want you to to speak at a demonstration tomorrow. And I said, well, you know, um, I've never spoken at a demonstration. But he says, you love King and you understand racism. Just speak from your heart. I said, okay, I can do that. But I said, one thing. I said, you know, I'm planning to go to law school do you think this could wait three years? And he looked at me and he says, are you crazy? History can't wait. I said, what do you mean history can't wait? He said, King died today. You have to speak tomorrow. And I did. And it changed my life. We changed the universe. How did it change your life? Well, because I'd never spoken out before. And I know how powerful it was to speak out. I'd never been in a coalition in a demonstration with white folks and black folks. Uh, I'd never seen once you spoke out... All the racism that was hidden in the university came out. I used to have people chase me to try to beat me up when I wasn't with the black athletes because I was alone. Uh, I had people throw urine and uh, beer on me as I walked by some of the frat houses. Not all the frat members, but, you know, some of them that were a little crazy. And uh, so you learned about it, and you learned that uh, you have to stand up because we got the first scholarships for people of color. And you know what I found out 20 years later when I ran into some of the black athletes? They said that the university at one point in our negotiations, cause I was the only Latino and then there were whites and you know, we were talking for Asians and Native Americans. We told the black athletes, we'll give you whatever you want, but we're not gonna give anybody else anything. And they told the university, it's all or nothing. Good for them. Isn't it amazing? So 1906 was incredible, 68 was an incredible year. Um, Martin Luther King was killed, RFK was killed. You know, there's a lot of turmoil. Um, and we had the Olympics with all the demonstrations and everything, the right. shooting of students at the University of Mexico. So I was caught up in the fervor of 1968 and it showed me that I had power, that I could do I could do something. I dropped out of the university for six years. What did you do? I, I went uh, back and taught Head Start Daycare and I taught uh, farm workers ESL, English as a second language. Started my first street theater group and then uh, I joined the women's strike in the lettuce and became part of United Farm Workers and worked with Cesar Chavez, learned about organizing poor people. And, and, you know, the thing that when I went to work for Cesar Chavez, you know what our salary was, was $5 a week for wages, $10 for food. Of course, I was a little bit thinner then. You, know? <laughs> you, you can't go out and eat. Uh, but, and he got the same wages. But what you find, I think a lot of people... In any movement, whether it's the environment or whether it's women's movement or student movements, when you go out, nobody pays you to begin your first work. You go out because you believe. You believe, right. And then maybe a job appears that where you can sustain yourself. But most of the time, it's because you believe and you say, "This is right. I want to be part of it. I want to speak out." And you know the process, and even now, you know I've been at this a long time, is. Every day I meet good people who can do good things and are smarter than you. All you have to do is be able to listen. Like one of the most interesting groups that I've worked with in a long time is the uh, people that work against uh, genetically modified organisms or food and also with gangs, you know. I go with both groups that I've been working with over the years. I go, man, these really smart people. They're really creative. Uh, you know, uh, I was working in Jackson County with organic farmers and you know these guys are smart smart businessmen you know and some of the best treatment i saw of farm workers was by organic farmers you know they go and they go like when i was campaigning they go yeah go talk to my workers i talk to the workers they talk good about the boss bosses organic farmers giving them bonuses treating them right and obviously you don't have any pesticides so the workers right. are really protected and they right. they they go home healthy they they eat good and then a lot of education. But I think, you know, I was pushed to go out and become active. When you look at Martin Luther King, he was pushed to come out and be active. Uh, and you know, he didn't choose the Montgomery boycott. Montgomery boycott chose him and the ministers there. Cesar Chavez was pushed uh, by an Anglo to become involved. And and you know, so but you, a lot of people get pushed and don't go. Don't a lot do of it. people don't get pushed because they're afraid. Like I was afraid. You know, I was afraid when this white guy come and told me, you know, you're going to demonstrate. I go, because my father had always told me because of the Mexico experience, they're going to kill you. They're going to call you a communist. It'll be all over for you. But so and, you know, when Cesar, you know, when I went to join the Farm Workers Union, my family goes, gee, you're only going to get five bucks a week. Why are you doing that, son? But people don't realize how much you learn from those experiences and how important it is. Like if you had to pay everybody who marched, like uh, this Saturday they're going to march uh, across Selma, the 50th anniversary. Nobody paid those people to march.
0: No. They and did they, it because it and, was right. And they had every right to be fearful as well. And it was just.
1: Well. Yeah. And so you never know what you're going to meet. So a lot of the characters that are in that movie I've met because I worked in Atlanta with Andy Young and other people. And, with, and uh, you know, met Harry Belafonte who brought all the artists there. And I've worked with him on Gangs. But, you know, so I'm in Atlanta at Christmas. So with my family there, my daughter and my wife, and uh, we go to see Salma. That's where it premiered pretty much in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And so the next day my, my daughter says, well, come out. To, I want you to meet the Uber driver that's driving me around, which is these cars, sort of taxis. And so I go out there. The guy turns out, the, the film opens up with the bombing that killed the four young girls at the 16th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham. This man, uh, the Uber driver, was assistant pastor there. Oh my goodness! Oh man! So I'm sitting there in the front seat with him. I'm like, I'm like, nah. You know, I go. This was meant to be that I'm gonna have my teacher come to me in a taxi, and he's gonna educate me some more. So you never know when you're gonna get, you know, some new learning that's gonna come into you. You know, like one day I'm I'm with I was working with Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Mm-hmm. This little lady comes up next to Reverend Joe Lowry, who was head of SCLC then, and it's Rosa Parks. I go, what the fudge? Here I am with, and it happened once, twice, three times. Every time I'd go to a convention, there'd be Rosa Parks, and I go, you know what? People would pay to be with this small, little, humble lady. And I go, how can she be so humble when the rest of us have such big egos? She never asked for, you know, I'm Rosa Parks. Let the waters part for me. She goes. No, I'm just Rosa Parks, just there.
0: So, um, I, there are so many different stories we could delve into, and I'm I'm th- deciding which way to go here, you know. But I almost want to just dive right into the topic because you obviously okay. have a deep history of organizing, right. and the last work you just mentioned it. You were working in organizing around uh, GMOs GMO. in Jackson County, and then in the state. Of Washington,
1: yeah, for a for a food labeling on GMO issues. So you know, p- part
0: of the reason I want to dive into this topic is because you have a deep history in organizing. I have I came out of working as a volunteer in the CR Club before right. starting my own nonprofit, and one of my personal journey was it really was in running for mayor that I started to get a deeper understanding of the connections between different people's struggles. Right. I mean, I may have understood it on some book reading level or rational level. And certainly I was sympathetic, you know, to other people's causes. But I hadn't really done work in it. And so for me, I got out of my own community. I met people. I learned about other things. And a bunch of stereotypes were shattered about other people. Um, a big criticism of the environmental movement is it's too white. And it doesn't allow people of color run. Now, you were just working on uh,
1: GMOs and-, right. and well, as you remember, in um, November, you lost your job. And then I lost my yeah, days afterwards. Yeah. So I'm sitting in my house in, uh, in South Seattle. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I said, you know, because of the pesticides that they use with GMO seeds and products, I said, I really have to go work on this GMO issue. And I said, you know, because I don't have any on my resume, it doesn't say I'm a, a good environmentalist and probably I'm not as good as I could be. Uh, So, I went to a couple of my friends with foundation. I said, Would you give me a little bit of money to go out there and work? And so I went to Jackson County and, you know, I just told them I'm coming. I'm going to come to work. And somebody offered me a free house and then uh, I go there and and nobody knew what to do with me. They just said, Well, why don't you go talk to these people? And so then I went and organized Latinos and other progressives in Jackson County. But, you know, if I would have waited or applied, I would have never gotten a job with them. I had to raise my own money and go because. People don't have the experience. They didn't know how, you know, to involve a, a Latino or right. a, a black. Um, and so and so it was a little bit difficult, the same when I went for the statewide campaign. But what I found out is that a lot of the people that I work with, they have a deep understanding of civil rights, of human rights. Just that it never clicked in their mind, well, we ought to recruit somebody to right. come in and do this work. But, that you know, to say uh, I didn't find them to be racist, I didn't find them to be— uh, pushback. Uh, they, they didn't understand exactly what I had to offer. But I, I was always impressed by their understanding about the big issue that they had the same feelings I did about pesticides. Uh, they had traveled internationally to Latin America, to India. They knew the, the movements there and people of color. And they had just never figured out how to do that other piece. And, and what was the other piece? The other piece is how to really go out and talk to workers and people of color and to bring them in and to activate them.
0: And, and how should an environmental organization do that, if well, it wants I, to do that?
1: Well, I think you either, and you don't have to be a, a brown or black to do it. It's good if you find somebody, but but the thing is you have to go to their communities and go to their activities, their churches, their meetings. I did that when I went to work with the, in Atlanta for me to get in with a black community because I wasn't black. Amnesty's a white organization. And uh, but you have to go to their their things. So what did you do with Amnesty? Give me tell well, me that story. Well I I you know, I went to uh, Southern Christian Leadership, I asked to meet with Joe Lowry, who's president. They said, No, you gotta meet with Tim McDonald, who's vice president. He stood me up for three meetings. I went to his secretary one Friday and I said, Tim McDonald asked me to meet him for breakfast, but I forget where he eats on Monday. And she said, well, he's gonna be at Pascal's, which is Dr. King's favorite meeting place, a restaurant, which is really good food, best grits in Atlanta. And so I went there and I got in, I asked the waitress, Where is, who's Tim McDonald? I scooted in next to his booth and he said, what are you doing here and who are you? And I said, I'm the man you stood up three times and you're gonna have breakfast with me. And we met, we're, we're good friends and I got involved with Southern Christian leadership, but I went to their meetings. You know, all of us, You know, we're, we're all organizers. So at some time, we were courting somebody, either somebody from a different gender or somebody of our same gender. So you do whatever you have to do to get them to notice you, right? You don't sit there at home and say, well, gee, I wonder if they're going to come by and say hello to me. No, you have to become proactive, and that's what you do as an organist. You have to court them. You have to court them, you know, and you have to... You have to know their interests. They know their interests. Oh, you took biology. Oh, it was my favorite class, even though you hated it. Or, oh, man, I always liked the color red or, you know... Uh, and you know we lie to each other a little bit, you know, to get into right. speed dating stuff. But I think, I think I've never done that. You've ever. never done that. I've never well, done I'm going to ask your wife. I'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, don't do that. Don't do that. I'll get but, in trouble. But you know, my wife says, "Oh man, you were." And she says, "You know, I don't dance," and she said, "You took me dancing our first six months of our courtship." I said, "I would do anything to get close to your heart," and I think that's the way we have to think about causes. Is to say. What's a creative way of getting there? How do we get to those folks? So so
0: we were talking about this before the show. So going to the church service, going to the community meeting, and just going, not to recruit, but just to go and hear and listen.
1: Yeah, and you learn a lot. So I I was trying to recruit this black minister in Portland this last year, and nobody would do an introduction, so I just started going up to, to a service. Baptist services are long, man. Go to Catholic service. You're out of there before an hour. Here you're two and a half hours, but it's great. Music's great. The singing's great. Preaching's good. And so finally the minister says, well, what are you doing in my church? I said, you and I got to talk. And then I found out all his civil rights history in the South with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, all his stuff with the Black Panthers. And now he's a minister of God. And he knew that, you know, when I started talking to him about all of my experience of working with blacks and we connected, but he would have never known just seeing me that, you know, that I had this history and I would seen him as a minister. I didn't know anything about his history, but you don't know. And everybody is more than what the shell is, you know, what we, what we put out in public. So, you know, uh, and the people really get to know us and that's why we have to tell our stories because our stories is what connects us. You know, one of the things that
0: frustrates me when I look at this issue of, of, how white the environmental movement is, you know, the organization and the volunteers are, is you can start getting this belief that somehow or another environmentalism is a value that's held primarily by white people. If you want to talk to communities of color, what they're going to be concerned about are civil rights, or jobs, or police abuse, or, or something else. And one of the things I learned as I as I did all of this work, I remember going down to. A Beacon Hill Elementary, El Centro de la Raza, and meeting with Roberto Maestas, a big beautiful mural, and he's walking me through the mural on the wall, and he's talking with this deep love, in his heart, of environmental values, and I, you know a little thing is clicking here. Well, hold it, right? This is in the this is in the spiel, so to speak, right. that Roberto has, and I. I think it's both. I, I think I had both the strength and a weakness as a politician, which is I never wanted to change my message to the audience. I may highlight some things differently, right. but I needed to say what I believed to everybody. And what I discovered was when I talked about the environment, in say in front of a Latino audience, in front of a, an African immigrant audience, in front of a black audience, the heads were nodding. They were there. Right now, if that's all I talked about, they might say, "I'm not sure about this guy." Right. Right? They wanted to know where I was. So just recently, a poll came out. Polls come out multiple times that show that Hispanics, Latinos' beliefs about the environment are much more deeply held than white folks, if you poll them. Well, and, it, and, and commentators treat this as if it's, oh, my goodness. And my experience was, yeah, you know it's, 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 it may be contoured differently, exactly what their beliefs are, but it's
1: deep and real. Well, part of of the issue is that when you look at people of color, whether you're blacks or Native Americans, that when the U.S. goes to dump uh, toxic waste, they put them in the black neighborhoods or on close to Indian reservations. Uh, All of the fracking, all of the GMO stuff, the pesticides, herbicides, are used on on people of color. And Cesar Chavez, with an eighth-grade education, there's a great film called Cesar's Last Fast, he fasted for 36 days, water only, because we saw all these cancer clusters coming out in farm workers and their families, people being born without legs, people dying early because of cancer. And he, in our contracts, is the first place in America where DDT was banned and some other chemicals. Because he, here's a farm worker telling everybody this, a DDT is, is bad for you, and so are these other chemicals, and we're not going to sp- allow you to spray them on our workers if we have a union contract. And so the thing that Cesar, when he did that fast, he said, and ended up, you know, because some of us didn't understand it, including me at that time, and this was 1988, and he says, uh, he says, the reason I'm fasting, he says, because we have to protect the workers, we have to protect the consumers, and we have to protect the environment. Now, you tell me that's not a a holistic environmental uh, mother earth stand that you can uh, put your hat on. And so when I've been going around educating people, I take a speech. I take that movie and I said, you know what? This is not new. We've been in it. We've been right. in after a that. long time. We got to go for it. And, um, and, and, and people see if you go in the South, there's people who fought the toxic dumping in their area in Arizona. There's people who have fought the dumping of a uh, toxic waste there. So, one is we know that we're poisoned. You know, like recently in my own family, a cousin died who's my age. He worked at a steel mill. Our family in, in, in Pueblo, Colorado never talked about toxic stuff. But my aunt comes and says, You know what? He, he died from asbestos poisoning like 50 other workers in the plant. Then my cousin Ruben died recently. He was a soldier in Vietnam. And his son writes in his eulogy My father was a good soldier, he was a good American but he was sprayed with Agent Orange, and it took his life early. And he says, and I wonder how it's gonna affect my children that I have. So let's so let's like dig into this, right?
0: So the history is there yeah. of the overlap of civil rights and environmental work. There's not a, a difference in attitudes. If anything, attitudes may be stronger around the environment in communities of color than lots of people are willing to admit. Then what's the problem? Why don't we see, Why why don't we see stronger uh, networks and stronger coalitions? Why is leadership in environmental organizations the way they are? Maybe you should put it back on me, but but that's kind of the question, because if this is all true, then what's the barrier?
1: Well, I think one of the things is that the environmental movement has never connected as well what they're doing and how it affects communities of color is one part. Second is the people who are funding environmental movements are, fundle, are funneling some upfront stuff like you know, protecting the sea or protecting the woods or protecting the water, but they don't—they don't connect it with you know particular groups that are going to be there. So you sort of have to do the translation for it. Second, I think is that a lot of people of color who are poor, including poor whites, they're struggling just to eat, to survive, to stay out of jail, and uh, you know, so many of us who are people of color that that we're in jail for a long time for for stuff that you worked on when you were an elected official to minimize the, the effects of uh, the simple arrest of marijuana right. and that. Right. And so when you look at, uh, and somebody I was just meeting with a, a researcher at the University of, the, of Washington today, Catherine Beckett, she's going to send me a study. One out of nine people in prison in the state of Washington is serving a life sentence. Oh my goodness! Isn't that crazy? That was that crazy. Three you, strikes, you're outlaw. Yeah, and you go, what the fudge? And so, you go, we have to change this. And so, if you look at you know, if if environmentalists took on what is happening environmentally, right, to people in prison, they would go, you know, the community say, wow, you're taking care of my loved ones who are there, right? Or we're saying, you know, uh, you know, the one thing that I tell people that governments can do because they go, well, you know, poor people can't. Uh, afford uh, you know organic food but i said you know what if they have a choice they're going to choose the better food and so what i really liked about seattle when i was working here full time was the green dollars yeah the fresh bucks yeah how does that how did that work again you no know, it
0: was it was great we basically uh, we got some donations we put some dollars in and so if somebody went to the farmers market right. swipe their card the food stamps is what it's called but it's actually a, that a has card name, yeah. yeah it's a debit card of a of a kind for every dollar that they swiped with their card, they would be given matching dollars in the form of tokens. So it would double their dollars in the farmer's market. So if you bought fresh vegetables there, you had twice as many dollars, which also had the added, had multiple added benefits. One added benefit was it put more dollars into the hands of our organic farmers, which has a positive benefit, made it more profitable for them, more, more sales. The other thing, and this was something that really struck me because I remember going to the farmer's market one day. The farmer's markets are fun. Right? There's so many people out there, you know, musicians are coming out and busking, the sun is shining, there's all this beautiful food and crafts, everybody's having a great time. And think about, oh, but I can't go there because I don't have enough money. Right? So what we were doing was we were bringing every, you know, we were building community too with that. So yeah, I I love that program.
1: Well, see, in immigrants and refugee communities, you go to the developing the world. You have those marketplaces. everywhere. Where, right? Where, yeah, and you have right. it's like a it's like a state fair. You go in there every day. Things are fresh. Uh, you meet people. You, you meet learn, people. Yeah. there's entertainment. It has a life of its own. But let's
0: go back to this. I want to go back to this. You were talking about you know the number of people in prison. That's actually a great example to me. There were a couple of threads I want to pick up on here. One thread was the idea of funders looking to fund an objective. So you right. can get, I'm gonna add a little to this, so you can get a top-down type of situation occurring. What's the most efficient way to take my dollars and turn it into an outcome? Protecting a river, right. protecting a wilderness, stopping Arctic oil drilling, shutting down a coal plant. And oftentimes that will mean, well, let's hire the experts, people who think and talk like me, right. and then they can hire the pollsters and messaging people. And in a way, you're cementing, your, your funding privilege Right. In a way, as opposed to let's do it the other way. Let's give all the let's see if we can't do fund organizing from the bottom up. I think that's part of
1: it is that I think occurs. Well, you know what we're, we're finding out now, if you really want to do environmental change, besides bringing people of color on, which is important, but well, there's two groups you really have to go after our mothers and children. Because children are going to get it quicker and it's a long term fight that we're going to have. Mothers are going to do whatever they have to do to get the best food for their kids. That's first and foremost. More than most men will do it. They're real fighters. When they, you talk about the kids, you know, and I've been talking to parents in in Irvine, California, about just uh, the school spraying, uh, spraying pesticide on the playground to kill weeds, and we're trying to get them to take on some uh, environmentally sound uh, weed control without using these harsh pesticides so once once you uh um, educate the youth they're they're the ones who are going to cause the change they'll affect their parents they'll push their parents you know what? i went out of this baptist church that i was in uh allen baptist church in portland and there was a you know it was a an hour almost a two-hour service i was hungry it's one o'clock in the afternoon i wanted some lemonade so i thought there was a bunch of little boys uh, selling uh Thought they were selling lemonades and cookies and go I go out there and instead they're selling their old, uh, you know, their electronic games and dinosaurs and I don't know what else. So I go, oh, well, I'm going to buy some stuff just so they have a sale. So I'm got there and I'm going to sale and I said, uh, you guys ever think about what you eat? They go, oh, yeah. I said, you ever think about how safe it is or what's in your food? And the oldest kid looks at me, are you talking about GMOs? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I go, wow. I go, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about GMOs. He said, well, give us some literature. And I had a bunch of literature in my pocket. They said, everybody who stops at our store, we're going to tell them not to buy GMO and to support your campaign. That's awesome. That's awesome. The other thread,
0: I think, was the other place that you went in your dialogue was the number of people that are in jail. Right. In our society that have life sentences are in jail. And that was the other one that really, that stuck with me, particularly in our black community, but Latino community as well. The number of people that are jailed
1: is well, it's astounding. It's astounding, and most of them are there for nonviolent crimes, and and it affects more the African American community. And right after that is Latinos. And uh, so you gotta you gotta figure out how do you don't ruin because once you put a person in jail, you start ruining whole generations, their whole family because their their parents are there. We look down at people, and as you know, you had a program where you were trying to reinsert people back into society. Yeah, career it's bridge. It's hard. It's hard. You, you know, we don't have a lot of new criminals. We have recidivism in the state of Washington. That's how our prisons are repopulated every couple of years. Because we bring them out and then you know they have to pay their legal financial obligations, they can't do that, they get frustrated, so if you wanna pay off your debt you might do something illegal, or uh, might get into some other trouble or break parole. But we don't make it easy, and, and what we wanna do, and that's for all states in the United States, most of their budget is going into oh prisons. The incredible,
0: the amount of money that we put into yeah uh, the whole criminal justice system is astounding, but it this discussion brings me back to the same place, right? We ended up in a place which is if you want to effectively build coalitions around environmental causes and really bring people to the table in an effective way, you have to work on the causes that – if you want to build a coalition with the black community, you have to work on what the black community cares about. Right. And so that means you have to work on the issue of the numbers of African-American men that are incarcerated, black men that are incarcerated every year. And I guess I'm saying it brings me around to the conclusion I've, I've been thinking about that. It's it's like everything goes through race in America. Everything goes through race. I mean, if you want to, it's like it's at the heart of our, it's, it's not this issue. You can't go around it, right? You can't say, let's just put that issue aside for a moment so we can work on the issue I really care about. Right. You got to say no. Actually, it's at the center of our society, and we have to work on that if we want to work on the issues that everybody cares and about. I, and I
1: think if we we start a dialogue with people, people are going to want to, you know, uh, and and we start working on the issues of race, and people will say, yeah, you know, and here's this other thing, you know, I want my kids right. to have have a healthy meal at school. I want to see that my my relative is in jail, I want to see that they have healthy food. That it's not asbestos in the walls where they're being held. Uh, uh, you know, we want to make sure that the cleaning fluids that cleaning the prisons with or healthy. So what what you do is when you raise a concern about anybody and, and, and you go to where they're where is your heart, where does it start? And you'd be surprised where people are and you'd be surprised how smart they are. And working with gangs and ex prisoners, I found they're some of the smartest people. That just because you got incarcerated or you're living on the street, it's like you talk to homeless people in Seattle, you have some really smart people there. They're not all, uh, you know, we have some brothers and sisters who have some issues going on. But there are some smart people out there, you know. I, So one guy, Chris, who I always used to give a dollar to every other day. And one day on Valentine's, I gave him 20 bucks. And he said, why are you giving me $20 today? And I said, because you're my Valentine. And he has a full, beautiful, curly, white beard. And he says, well, uh, Leno, what could I ever give you? I said, are you serious? You want to give me something? He goes, yeah, yeah, what can I give you? Said, "Can you give me your beard? <laughs> I would like to have a full beard like that." But you know, but I think whether a person is homeless or whether a person's in even those in institution for emotional issues, is we got to figure out how to treat them. And you know, one of the things that separate us that that's difficult for our society, we're a society that is in pain. No matter whether you're rich, poor, middle class, black, Latino, Asian, Native American. We all have a lot of pain for different reasons, and we don't know how to deal with it. And that's why we have all this personal violence and community and racial violence. It's not that we're a bad people; it's that nobody's taught us how to how to deal with the pain that we have in our heart and mind. Because something bad has happened to a lot of us, and we haven't been able to resolve that. And we have to treat we have to treat this uh, with love. You know, Dr. King and other leaders would tell us. You know, the greatest weapon we have is love. Because if you if you let hate take a you know before I was nonviolent I was violent and once you become nonviolent you can't hate people you may not like their act but for me to stay up all night hating somebody I got too many things to do I can't hate anymore and so but a lot of people go to they wake they go to sleep with hatred in their heart they wake up with hatred it's destroying them destroying their family so we got to say we got to figure out a way if we took care of a lot of hate and fears. We would get people of colors, class, uh, sizes, uh, different abilities together, and we'd be at a better society. But as long as we have a fear or we hate something, we're not going to do that. But we got to get over that. You know, it's not easy. So, Leno, i like to close with a song that the guest picks. What would you pick for us? Sweet Honey in the Rock and a great civil rights song. Ain't going to let nobody turn me around, turn me around. I'm going to keep on walking, keep on talking, walking down that freedom line. <laughs> Thank you, Lena. Let's. We're gonna play it, and we'll bring it out a little bit. Oh yeah. That's right.
0: Just say it now.